welcome to the second day of the, or the first full day of the, the Languages of Internationalism Conference. My name is Dora Varga, I'm one of the Reluctant Internationalists. Um, and this is the panel on Cold War Miscommunication. And we've, we've changed the order of the talks very slightly, so Diana Georgescu is going to go first. Um, she's a lecturer um, in history at uh, UCL, just next door. So, oh, just like that. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, welcome everybody, and thank you for waking up so early to hear about pioneers. Um, really, this research that started a couple of years ago focuses on a rather widespread practice of uh, youth exchanges during the Cold War. And I started my inquiry from the international, quite ambitious international agenda of the Romanian pioneers, which is a rel relatively marginal children's organization in uh, socialist Eastern Europe, but one which nevertheless sent hundreds of Romanian teens uh, as cultural ambassadors on trips to international camps uh, to the Soviet bloc, Western Europe, and sporadically Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And for reasons of brevity, uh, the presentation today will focus on exchanges with the Soviet bloc and Western Europe. Now, of course, pioneer camps had been some of the most visible manifestations of socialist internationalism in the Soviet bloc in the post-war period. But uh, with Nicolae Ceausescu's accession to the leadership of the Communist Party in Romania in 1965, and moreover with his um, ambitions to emerge as a mediator of Cold War conflicts, uh, we see a significant boom in Romanian youth exchanges that lasts well into the mid-1980s when the sort of economic currency crisis puts a stop uh, to this. And here, for example, you see one of these examples of cultural diplomacy, the presidential couple posing with members, children mostly, of a newly joined international organization, rather apolitical, uh, the International Summer Villages. Now, uh, camps were envisioned as children's republics, uh, and in this they continued a long European and Soviet pedagogical tradition of socializing children as socialist citizens by training them in the practice of self-management and self-government in particular. So they were seen as inherently social and political beings, but also as malleable and to some extent free of prejudice. So in that sense, children and teens seemed particularly suited to communal living, a practice that was meant to imbue them with a sense of socialist solidarity that would, at least uh, in theory, um, overcome cultural, national, and ideological differences. But of course, in practice, uh, camps tended to be quite fraught with ideological tension, uh, divergent pedagogical traditions, and even practical limitations. So really what drew my attention when I started the research and I was browsing through this youth activists' reports of travel abroad, so rather official uh, reports, was this tension between the presumably shared visions of socialist internationalism that brought together state socialist and even leftist European organizations and the actual conflicts that emerged uh, in practice. Oral histories with former child participants kind of put a little bit more flesh on the bones of these preliminary insights. And then finally, the, these disagreements and agreements became a little bit more clear when I um, sort of expanded the research to include the perspective of left-wing youth organizations, such as the International Falcons Movement, which has branches in several European countries, 
including in Britain. Its branch here is called the Woodcraft Folk. I'm not sure if anybody heard of them, but they emerged in the interwar period as an alternative to the Boy Scouts and had quite a few exchanges within the Soviet bloc. So as I hope to show, language both in the sense of these visions of socialist internationalism and the practicalities of communication, mistranslation, played a central role uh, in these exchanges. So let's begin with travel to the Soviet bloc, where Romanian delega delegations in the 60s and 70s were kind of expected to assert Romania's national autonomy against Soviet hegemony. Uh, so these camps, as I mentioned, were promoted as experiments in self-government, but of course they were in fact diplomatic venues, so they were heavily mediated and monitored. They were mediated by delegation leaders who had to keep control of the children under their supervision and avoid any diplomatic incidents. They were controlled uh, and monitored by camp administrators who had to sort of impress upon these foreign guests the socialist achievements of their respective government. And they were also monitored by translators and interpreters who had a very complex uh, cultural and ideological role. In the 60s and 70s, these dynamics were complicated by the political tensions triggered by Ceausescu's advocacy of independent communism and all these campaigns, uh, his domestic campaigns of national reclamation and of even de-Russification, as they have been called in scholarship. By the 1970s, Ceausescu had established diplomatic relations and economic agreements with the West, had strengthened alliances with socialist outliers, especially China and North Korea, and courted the non-aligned movement. While Romania continued to be a member of the bloc's military and economic alliances, it was one that was kind of reluctant and increasingly calling for a sort of fraternal internationalism based on non-interference in internal affairs. In response to these changes, Romanian pioneers arriving at Artek, which most of you know is the flagship Soviet camp in the Crimean Peninsula, uh, found themselves the target of politically charged questions that seemed quite at odds with the camp's goal of promoting socialist uh, solidarity. And both children and adults had to kind of fight, fight off this, what they called insinuating questions that were posed mostly by the Soviet pioneers, but also sometimes the Hungarian and Polish counterparts. So do Romanian pioneers still wear scarves? Are their scarves still red? Do Romanian pioneers still celebrate the October Socialist Revolution? Do they study Russian in school? And in fact, this last question was not entirely misplaced because even Romanian delegation leaders were complaining in their reports that the children sent to the Soviet Union barely spoke any Russian and could not fulfill their ambassadorial mission. And this was a direct result of the Romanian government's investment in teaching what they call modern European languages in schools, increasingly in the 60s and 70s, so English, German, French. And so in a weird sense, it in fact dovetailed with this official tendency of the government to reject the imposition of Russian as the sort of lingua franca of the Soviet bloc and see it not as internationalism, but as imperialism. So Romanian delegations at Artec, especially in the reports, um, very often denounce the host's failure to promote internationalism. And they do blame it or on the promotion of Russian language and culture um, <clears throat> alongside what they see as Soviet militarism and dogmatism. So what, what, what is it that they don't like? They don't like the fact that Soviet pioneers, in a kind of analogy with how the Soviet Union was behaving, are supposed to act as patrons 
of, of other foreign children's groups. That these groups are only um, sort of exposed to Soviet uh, songs and rituals, an expression of cultural imperialism, which they also worried meant that delegations from third world countries were exclusively familiarized with the Soviet model of educating children. And, and these accusations are articulated with a mixture of resentment and admiration because in fact, uh, youth activists were looking to learn from the Soviets a model of patronage that, that they could, that could then deploy in their own interactions with the so-called developing countries. But in this general climate of distrust, really the most reviled figure of the Soviet bloc camp, at least from the report, seems to be the, the interpreter, who was tasked not just with translating, but with monitoring and spying on guests. So Soviet translator, for example, encroached on the authority of the Romanian delegation leaders, and sometimes they approached, for example, Hungarian, um, Hungarian Romanians on the team with questions about the rumored closing down of Hungarian language schools and universities. Um, they also, of course, had the power to mistranslate, and, and thus uh, they were suspective of obstructing internationalist communication. Soviet translators reportedly failed to inform Romanian teams of sports competition or simply left them out of certain meetings with other uh, children's organizations. And the tensions were felt even beyond the Soviet Union. So there's this delegation, that Romanian delegation, that visits the GDR in 1967, right after the Romanian government established diplomatic relations with the, German, um, the Federal German Republic. So they have to deal with this rather disgruntled German hosts. And the way this manifests is that they are under surveillance by the German translator who reports on their communication and um, who questions them on Romania's relation with the German uh, Republic. Uh, but of course, to some extent, we have to be cautious with these reports because there are also ways for, for youth activists to present themselves in a positive light back to their superiors uh, in, in Romania. So to show that they were aware of these possible diplomatic tensions, prevented them, contained them, and so on. So, but it, what's interesting at the, is that international camps, because they functioned as diplomatic venues, in some sense, it's not surprising that these political tensions played out in pioneer exchanges. But it's interesting that these disagreements, especially between socialist organizations, were fought on the common terrain of shared practices of internationalism, and especially assumptions about the, the role of children as political activists, yeah, the fact that they were supposed to ask this type of political questions, engage in political discussions. And, and these practices had roots in a common organizational history engendered by the traditional system of mutual youth exchanges that dated back to the 1940s. So they, they knew how to do this. <laughs> they, knew, they knew how to contain these diplomatic um, <coughs> tensions. Now, the Romanian pioneers also made sustained efforts to diversify international relations beyond the Eastern Bloc. They took particular pride in outrunning the Soviets when initiating contact with progressive movements in Western Europe, such as the International Falcons Movement. And throughout the 60s and 70s, Romania's discourse of diplomatic opening, in fact, gave youth activists significant room for maneuver in positioning themselves vis-a-vis -vis the West. If some delegation leaders continued yeah, to um, critique the ideological and economic evils of capitalism, they kind of fretted over the potential impact of materialism, consumerism, and, and popular culture on Romanian children, 
other youth activists saw themselves as messengers of reconciliation. And for these people, camps were opportunities to expand young people's hori cultural horizons, especially when uh, trips abroad involved visits to places such as Paris, London, Vienna, München, or Stockholm. Um, and in interviews, it seems that quite a few of the former child participants, who are typically selected from the category of cultured youth, so central to socialist pedagogy, as good in school, although of course they're expected to also have athletic and artistic abilities and to be fluent in as many languages to impress abroad. So they also felt that this was to a great extent an immersion in Western culture. And this comes from, from an interview with a 14-year-old at the time, in 79, who participated in a camp in Germany. Yeah, so she, she, does, she, she does, at least now retrospectively, see it as a cultural experience. This ridiculously well-cultured youth, she was also reading Tolstoy, by the way, on the tram to school. And of course, she was uh, in, impressed uh, with the culture, but not so impressed with her peers. <laughs> So for the most part, it seems that youth camps, really administered by left-wing organizations, were viewed as safe oases of so socialist solidarity, and to some extent, even as sources of inspiration, possibly for a progressive camping pedagogy. And a lot of youth activists, and definitely the children, appreciated the kind of um, elective and recreational character of the program, which seemed to exploit the educational valences of, chi of, the, of child play. And the climate of friendship and intimacy seemed to also be enhanced by the tradition of employing young monitors who could establish stronger bonds of friendship with children than these older authority figures that were typically their delegation leaders. But of course, for every pioneer activist who welcomed the unexpected freedom from mandatory camp routines, there were those who deployed the laissez-faire pedagogy of the Western hosts, what they called the glaring absence of structure and discipline, purposeful education, or ideological content. So if Soviet camps erred on the side of militarism and dogmatism, those in the West were too carefree, ideologically weak, and in fact potentially dangerous because they were not monitored or mediated by official interpreters. This preference for informality very often kind of tipped the balance of authority in favor of young people who were fluent uh, in these languages and who struck um, friendships with ease with the young monitors who were come up in their recollections as the um, uh, relaxed and emancipated German or French hippies. I'm not sure if that's a <laughs> retrospective assessment. Yeah? So these were people who volunteer, young people who volunteered to run the camps. And these interactions and the practice of living with host families uh, allow them to practice foreign languages and often to remain in contact by correspondence long after the camps. By contrast, and to the dismay of Western hosts, some youth activists had to rely on children for translation. And anxious that they might lose control over their delegations, these activists often sometimes uh, prohibited international communication. Uh, and this won't come up in the reports in the Romanian archives, but they do come up in reports by the Woodcraft folk on the visit of Romanian delegation, yeah? Where they see the adult, uh, <coughs> leader forbidding young people to speak yeah, because he wasn't quite sure what was going on uh, and also resorting to blackmail to control them and uh, blackmailing them or threatening them with expulsion from the pioneer or youth organization if they don't behave. 
These anxieties were enhanced, in fact, by the fact that this progressive West that Romanian delegations had set out to explore in the wake of the student protests of 1968 were being transformed by a rather radical and anarchic new left that bore very little resemblance to, to kind of the ideal of discipline used from, promoted by the heavily bureaucratized organizations back home. And the French and German youth in particular seem to shock Romanian activists with their uncivilized behavior. Um, yeah, they smoked, they drank, they indulged in embarrassing public displays of affection, they wore long hair and sported a generally disheveled appearance, which barely distinguished them from the beggars in the streets, which of course were uh, a symbol of the... These, of course, this is about interactions between Romanian uh, youth and the French with a focus on again, on, on how important it is to keep a distance rather than engage in internationalist communication. I feel that in some sense these tensions uh, point beyond the linguistic incompetence and cultural illiteracy of some of the youth activists. They point to deeper disagreements between pioneer movements in the Soviet bloc and left-wing youth organizations in the West, at least those that I'm looking at. Uh, that Romanian delegations' paths to the West, in fact, intersected with the parallel trajectories of shared socialist pedagogies of collective education. Socialist and communist educators in Austria, in Germany, and France, for example, had experimented with forms of self-government in children's republics, and these play-centered pedagogies of the Educación Nouvelle movement since the interwar period. Although they shared some of their sources of inspiration, including Soviet pedagogues like Nadezhda Krupskaya and Moisei Pistrak with Eastern Bloc organizations, they in fact had arrived uh, at alternative practices and understandings of the ideal type of youthful behavior likely to foster the spirit of internationalism. So you see, on the one hand, Eastern Bloc organizations seem to emphasize self-discipline, to prize adult authority and competitive spirit, which comes up quite a lot, engaging children in mandatory collective programs, while most Western uh, European camps promoted elective activities that sought to cultivate an independent, self-reliant, but tolerant and cooperative youth. If pioneer camps in the Soviet bloc mobilized significant state resources to impress guests with modern facilities and specialized personnel, Falcon camps continued to prize these original goals of children's republics and to focus on self-government. And you see this when uh, they visit the Romanian camp, um, when they go to Novodar on the Black Sea coast in Romania in 1973, and they are asked to assess the camp. And they object to the luxury of having adults perform all the camp chores for children, which was a way of, of you know, um, impressing foreign guests. They say this is an exercise in democracy, this is an exercise in self-management, and they should not be denied this. Another point of contention sometimes was the rigidity, formality of competitive character of Romanian camps. Yeah, they, they, they see competition, especially in sports, as, as being sort of against the spirit of cooperation. Uh, and they often would have preferred small-scale interactions with other foreign delegations. Uh, and they conclude, this is on the competition, but they conclude on an unusually critical note because they are often very taken with the, the welcoming and hospitality of the Romanians. They say, a socialist attempting to educate children for social change in a capitalist world, we were very happy to head this delegation. We have a great need for our own encouragement of contact, discussion, exchange of ideas in informal, friendly meetings. 
we shall leave tomorrow morning feeling that we did not satisfactorily achieve this. And yet, despite all these disagreements, youth exchanges across the Iron Curtain continued unabated throughout the 70s and 80s, and they continued because they were mutually beneficial. For the youth organizations in the West, they sometimes provided a sense of ideological solidarity and even institutional recognition. Uh, and in the process, um, these organizations served as important allies in the Romanian pioneers' rather symbolic yeah, and measured fight against Soviet uh, hegemony. So I, in conclusion, I just, I, I feel that seen through the, the eyes of, of Romanian pioneers, of their adult supervisors, and even their foreign guests and hosts, youth camps emerge as transnational sites of both internationalist cooperation and quite a bit of ideological struggle that often mediated through language, these tensions and interactions uh, point to alternative visions and pedagogies of internationalism for youth that were often obscured by this abstract language of socialist solidarity. And it is precisely this ambivalent nature of youth exchanges that I do hope to capture with a project and maybe complicate the literature on transnational flows of people and ideologies in the contemporary world. And it seems to me that in its attempt to kind of uh, exceed the methodological confines of nationalism, uh, this scholarship tends to invest transnational practices, transnational identities, rather unproblematically with the potential to liberate, to emancipate, to dismantle stereotypes. And what gets obscured in this account is how transnational practices such as youth exchanges yet not only enable solidarity and friendship across uh, cultural political barriers, which they did, but also reinforced ideological and sometimes national differences. Thank you. Okay. Um, yeah, well, I'd like to thank the Reluctant Internationalist Research Group and Bridget O'Keefe for the chance to present my work to such a diverse and brilliant group of scholars. Um, it's very interesting for me to think about how my work might connect to um, problems of language um, in international contexts. So uh, the title of my presentation is Puzzling Over Permafrost, uh, Negotiating Language in the Earth Sciences During the Cold War. And I'd like to introduce my topic with a um, brief quotation from a primary source. Uh, the speaker is a geologist for the US Geological Survey. Her name is Ina Fare, and she writes in 1953, Permafrost is a term introduced by the American engineers and is very inadequate. She noted that permafrost has been considered a translation of the Russian Vietnam Mirzlata, but whereas she wrote Vietnam means continuous in time or long-lasting or usual, nevertheless it does not mean fixed or unchangeable, i.e. It does, it does not mean permanent. She asserted that Mirzlata in general is one of the least permanent phenomena in nature, therefore all terms derived from permafrost such as permafrostology, permafrozen, permafrost process, do not comply with the actuality for freezing is not permanent under the present conditions on the earth known to us. So in the early 1950s United States, Ina Pare was a rarity. She possessed both technical expertise in the earth sciences and fluency in Russian language. As a technical translator, she played a role in transferring Soviet scientific knowledge to North America. Her words in 1953 raised interesting questions. Today we recognize permafrost as a feature of the environment. But to Poiré, permafrost was an inaccurate term introduced by American engineers that failed to capture the meaning of the original Russian expression. 
if permafrost did not seem to be an appropriate word for the phenomenon, then how did it enter English scientific and popular language? What do the controversies surrounding permafrost reveal about the linguistic challenges of scientific communication? So today I want to answer these questions by focusing on permafrost research in the Cold War. First, I'll explore international uh, reasons for international interest in frozen earth and show that in both the Soviet Union and the United States, both before and during the Cold War, a primary motivation for scientific research into frozen earth consisted of solving problems related to civil engineering. Second, I'll examine in initiatives for and barriers to exchanging information about frozen earth. Both US and Soviet scientists expressed the need to translate scientific research by their foreign counterparts, but language, politics, and diplomacy pre presented obstacles. Finally, I analyzed the scientific and linguistic difficulties of translation. Part of the difficulty of translating research about frozen earth derived from ongoing debate about the nature of frozen earth itself. Soviet and American co controversies surrounding the terms Vietnamese and permafrost formed part of a long-standing debate about the ontology of frozen earth, whether it was ice or earth, space or substance, a structure or a condition. However, these debates took place in relative isolation during the early Cold War. Linguistic and political barriers, as well as Cold War priorities, prevented a full collective discussion about the nature of frozen earth. So under such conditions, permafrost, despite its contested origins, became a global scientific term. So in focusing on scientific terminology, my goal is not to cast doubt on the existence of permafrost as a natural object or doubt the validity of permafrost as a scientific term. What interested me were the accidents, cross moments, and varied understandings that accompanied uh, the transnational movement of ideas. I argue that scientific exchange in frozen earth research during the Cold War was complicated by not only geopolitics, but also language. Difficulties of translation exposed disagreement about the ontology of frozen earth itself. Disagreement about the nature of frozen earth resulted from different epistemologies on both the Soviet and the US sides. These included an earth systems approach focused on spaces of heat exchange, a geomorphology approach focused on processes of soil formation, and an engineering approach focused on physical geographical structures. Permafrost became a global scientific term thanks to the Cold War, but we can still see ambiguity in the ontology of frozen earth in discussions of permafrost today. So let me begin with international interest in, sorry, that math is very faded, sorry, in frozen earth. So in the 1930s, in connection with the five-year plans for socialist industrialization, um, the Soviet Union began building infrastructure and mining resources across the northern and eastern parts of its territory. All of these problems were confronted with engineering's problems connected to perennially frozen earth. For example, a subsidence happened when the frozen earth lying, uh, lying underground beneath the structure was exposed to heat and thawed. This caused the ground supporting the structure to subside and the structure to sink and deform. Also, heaving. Heaving referred to the swelling of the ground during the cold months and its subsiding during the warm months. So during the cold months, moisture in the ground would freeze and expand, and then the ground was very saturated with water, this expansion could be substantial. The ground bulged and uh, exerted pressure on structures sitting on top of it. This bulging was most extreme wherever a lot of groundwater had collected. And since the layer of perennially frozen earth underground was relatively impermeable to water, this meant that groundwater sometimes collected on top of it rather than flowing deeper underground. Thanks to the bulging of the ground, road embankments became lopsided and passage along the road was disrupted. Heave mounds also destabilized bridges, causing them to tilt. 
Uh, finally, icings. Icings happened during the cold months um, after a lot of ground had frozen, uh, but groundwater continued to flow through the interstices of soil and rock. A combination of high water volume and small outlets sometimes led to a buildup of pressure. This caused the groundwater to burst out into the open, flood onto the surrounding landscape, and quickly freeze, forming successive layers of ice. Icings also had negative effects on infrastructure, causing roads to become flooded and encased in ice. To help solve these engineering problems, uh, the USSR Academy of Sciences created an organization in 1930 dedicated specifically to studying frozen earth. This organization was led by Mikhail Ivanovich Sumgin, a former socialist revolutionary who became known as the founder of permafrost science. So as head of the new organization, Sumgin established a term for frozen earth, Vietnam Mirzlata. The new organization was called the Commission for the Study of Vietnam Mirzlata, became a committee in 1936, which became the Obertrev Institute for Frozen Earth Science, or Institute Mirzlata Viedinia, in 1939. Uh, thanks to the politics of socialist industrialization, frozen earth research became institutionalized in the Soviet Union earlier than anywhere else in the world. Uh, during World War II and continuing into the Cold War, uh, the U.S. undertook several large-scale projects in the Arctic and subarctic regions with perennially frozen earth for military purposes. Uh, for example, it built a series of airfields from Montana to Alaska. It constructed the Alaska-Canadian Highway, 2,400 kilometers. It laid the Canole Pipeline, 896 kilometers. Later, it built a series of radar sites across northern Canada known as the Distant Early Warning Line. As the U.S. Army sought information about frozen earth, it found that most current research was produced by Soviet scientists. Uh, so when the U.S. and the Soviet Union were allies in World War II, the U.S. received scientific literature from the Obertrev Institute. To make it accessible to English speakers, the USGS turned to Seaman Muller, um, sorry, it's a bit faded, oh, sorry, uh, um, a professor of geology at Stanford University. So Muller was born in 1900 in Blagoveshensk. Uh, but emigrated to the U.S. in 1921. In 1943, he completed what was known as Strategic Engineering Study Number 62, Permafrost or Permanently Frozen Ground and Related Engineering Problems. The purpose of the report, Mueller wrote, was to acquaint those unfamiliar with the Russian language with frozen earth. He noted that technical terminology pertaining to frozen ground phenomena is for the most part new and represents either a more or less free translation or direct adoption of terms widely used in Russian. Mueller created the word permafrost from the expression Vietnam Mirzlata. According to Mueller, uh, the literal translation of Vietnam Mirzlata was permanently frozen ground. But he found the expression too long and cumbersome, and for this reason, a shorter term permafrost is proposed as an alternative. While coining a new English word, Mueller preserved the definition given by Sumgin, soil or deposit or bedrock in which a temperature below freezing has existed continuously from two years to tens of thousands of years. This definition taken by Mueller from Simgin is still the definition of permafrost today. Uh, so the English neologism permafrost appeared therefore in 1943 as a loan translation of the Russian Vietnam Islata. Both terms reflected the engineering concerns of the Soviet American scientists studying frozen earth. They suggested an understanding of frozen earth as a physical geographical structure, frozen ground. After World War II, scientific exchange between the US and the Soviet Union became more difficult with the onset of the Cold War. At the same time, both Vietnam Islata and permafrost became contested terms. Um, politically, in connection with the post-war Stalinist anti-Western and anti-cosmopolitan campaigns, the Soviet government issued 
decrees restricting the publication and sharing of state secrets, including scientific research. In 1948, Andrei Markovich Chekatilo, who was deputy director of the Obertchev Institute after Sumgin's death, was accused of being anti-patriotic, of showing servility and kowtowing to foreigners because he had sent articles abroad on multiple occasions between 1943 and 48. His accusers specifically mentioned Mueller's book as an American compilation of frozen earth science done entirely on the basis of our Soviet work. They suggested that Chekatilo was to blame. That year, Chekatilo lost his position as deputy director. While political barriers blocked scientific exchange, uh, language barriers were also a challenge. In 1949, only about 50 employees of the US government had Russian language skills. Only a dozen were engaged in technical translation. Seaman Mueller returned to teaching at Stanford in 1945, so the USGS hired Ina Poiré in 1947. As one of only a handful of people with both geological training and fluency in Russian, Poiré was asked to prepare English summaries of Soviet scientific papers and review translations done by others. Poiré expressed bewilderment at the many misuses of the term permafrost in other people's translations. To say that the ground is in a frozen state made sense, Poiré wrote, but to say that it was in a state of permafrost did not, for permafrost was supposedly itself a material body and not a condition of something else. Texts also contain apparently nonsensical redundancies such as permafrost soil, permafrost ground, and permafrost of long duration. How could permafrost not be of long duration if it referred to permanently frozen ground? What was permafrost if soil or ground was not self-evidently understood? In some, in some, Poiré cautioned, I believe that the translator should be more careful with the terms, for a permafrost mixture of this kind should not be in the translation of a scientific or a technical paper. Poiré came to realize that problems of usage uh, were connected to ambiguities in the meaning of permafrost and uncertainty about the very object of study. The more I read of the American and foreign, not only Russian literature on the subject, she wrote to a colleague, the more I realize what follows. The feature in question is neither permafrost, nor perennially, nor eternally, nor Vietnam frozen ground. <laughs> the chief subject is not the ground itself, but groundwater. And finally, it is not clear what to consider as frozen ground or as frost in ground. Problems of terminology and usage plagued not only English translations of Soviet scientific articles, but also Soviet writings themselves. In 1948, the Communist Party launched an ideological campaign for creative discussions in the sciences. Sciences, scientists at the Obertchev Institute were encouraged to perform Bolshevik criticism and self-criticism. In this context, a younger generation led by Pyotr Filimonovich Shvetsov wanted to get rid of the term Vietnam Mirzlata that had been established by Sumgin. Shvetsov argued that the term Vietnam Mirzlata was misleading and ambiguous. Vietnam meant eternal, but frozen earth could not be eternal because its presence depended on a changing climate. Furthermore, Shvetsov discovered that the, term, that the noun Mirzlata had multiple meanings. Sometimes it referred to a physical substance such as soil or rock. Sometimes it referred to a condition of the soil or rock, its coldness or frozenness. This kind of ambiguity, he argued, was unacceptable for a scientific term. Citing the principles of dialectical materialism, Shvetsov advocated an earth systems approach. Uh, so whereas Sumgin had emphasized time and temperature in his conception of frozen earth, Shvetsov focused on space and heat. The object of study, Shvetsov said, was not frozen earth, but the frozen zone of the earth's crust, the cryolithosome. The cryolithosome was not a structure, but an envelope where exchanges of heat took place between different spheres of the planet, including the lithosphere and the atmosphere. Through its participation in heat exchange, the cryolithosome made up part of the system that was the Earth as a whole. 
While scientists debated Vietnam American scientists debated permafrost. One of the most vocal opponents to the term was Harvard geomorphologist Kirk Bryan. Um, he called permafrost an etymological monstrosity, combining a Latin word with the English, root, English word frost, none of which referred to the ground. Uh, furthermore, to a geomorphologist such as Brian, what made frozen earth important to study was its process of formation and not simply the object itself. Scientists need, therefore needed language to discuss the dynamics of frozen earth. With permafrost, Brian argued, a verb or verbal noun cannot be made as permafrosted would convey the false idea of the formation of a permanent coating. After all, the verb to frost meant to cover with hoarfrost something that bore little resemblance to the hardening of the soil due to the crystallization of minerals. Without the ability to transform into a meaningful verb, the word permafrost actually hindered communication about an essential feature of frozen earth. Brian's objections to permafrost were glossed over in favor of expediency. Uh, Robert Wallace of the US Geological Survey wrote to Brian that the simplicity of permafrost enhances its value immensely. It has been readily adopted and understood by engineers and laymen in Alaska who are concerned with various permafrost problems in construction and engineering. For Wallace, the essence of frozen earth consisted of its material reality in the ground as an engineering obstacle, and permafrost was a vivid way to evoke its presence. In the context of the Cold War, uh, with its focus on engineering and construction in the Arctic, permafrost quickly became part of the lexicon of the US military and government. New offices and agencies, such as the Alaska Terrain and Permafrost section of the USGS and the Snow, Ice, and Permafrost Research Establishment, or SIPRI, helped to institutionalize the term permafrost. As English became the international language of science in the second half of the 20th century, permafrost also became a global term. It was under the banner of permafrost that scientists from the Soviet Union, the US, Canada, and six other countries convened in an international conference in 1963. Subsequent international conferences, including the 11th International Permafrost Conference last year, further institu institutionalized the term. So permafrost, a lone translation from Russian, conveying an engineering conception of frozen earth as a physical geographical object institutionalized during the Cold War, uh, stays with us today. So I've argued that the Cold War enabled Vietnamese Lata to become permafrost by accelerating the adoption of Soviet terms and concepts while inhibiting full discussion of technical terminology. In the US, uh, Cold War competition and the need for applied research meant that discussions of terminology were sidestepped. At the same time, diplomatic divisions and linguistic divisions prevented the debates of Soviet scientists in the 1950s from becoming widely known, uh, widely known outside the Eastern Bloc. So despite its contested origins, permafrost has stuck, along with conceptions of uh, frozen earth as a physical geographical structure. Uh, today, understanding global warming has become a key motivation for permafrost research, yet ambiguities of the term permafrost still occasionally surface. Uh, given ongoing concerns about disappearing permafrost, Ina Paré's objection that freezing is not permanent under the present conditions on the earth known to us seem more relevant than ever. Um, in at the same time, in light of references um, in the popular press to melting of permafrost, scientists have sought to clarify that permafrost is thawing, not melting. Although they portray this error as faulty science communication, it actually opened a window onto long-standing disputes about the nature of the phenomenon, in this case, whether it is ice which melts or earth which does not. Uh, so the cold, uh, the cold War helped to give us permafrost, but perhaps we must pay more attention to other approaches of understanding frozen earth as a space of heat exchange, as a process that were obscured uh, by the Cold War. Thank you.
Thank you so much. Um, fascinating um, stuff. And now we move to a very different climate. Absolutely no permafrost. Um, uh, to Ethiopia. Um, this is Beatrice Wayne, um, a PhD candidate from NYU. Thank you. Okay, so in 1962, 282 Peace Corps volunteers arrived in Ethiopia. This was the largest single contingent of Peace Corps to go to any nation. They were the first of thousands who had come to the Ethiopian Empire between 1962 and 1974, the year that Haile Selassie's government was overthrown in a Marxist-Leninist coup. It shifted Ethiopia's Cold War alliances away from the US and towards the USSR. But in 1962, when these first volunteers arrived, the politics of the Cold War was far removed from their minds. They were focused on facing the members of Ethiopia's government-run press who had met them at the airport. They immediately felt the pressure to project the Peace Corps ideals of determination, optimism, <coughs> pioneering vigor, and cultural sensitivity. Looking overwhelmed or exhausted by what for many volunteers was their first overseas flight was not an option. The greatest pressure fell on Peter Gassell, a recent Harvard graduate who made a short speak using the eight weeks worth of language skills that he had acquired. <laughs> Gassell spoke slowly and carefully in Amharic. After a long trip, we are very happy to be in Ethiopia. We are grateful for the invitation to serve Ethiopia. We have come not only to teach, but also to learn. In response, Ethiopian journalists wrote approvingly about the use of Ethiopia's national language which they had not expected. The Ethiopian Herald noted that Gisel conveyed his words in good, plain Amharic. While the first group of Peace Corps volunteers were limited to eight weeks of language training in Georgetown, later groups had their site moved to Ethiopia. They trained for months in Jima and Awasa, and they completed their teacher training in fully immersive Amharic uh, language environments before they started to teach each fall. But whether the shorter trainings of the early recruits or the extended experience of later ethies, as they called themselves, the focus was on language training and resolutely not on Cold War politics. Both Peace Corps officials and Peace Corps volunteers believed that it was indeed through the acquisition of language and a demonstration of cultural openness and sensitivity, learning as well as teaching in the words of Peter Gassel above, that the Peace Corps could ascend the grubby politics of the Cold War. But is it precisely through an examination of the language issues that emerged between Peace Corps volunteers and their Ethiopian students that we can see the inherent limits of the Peace Corps ideal of apolitical internationalism? An inherent tension existed between Peace Corps, roles, Peace Corps teachers' putative role as apolitical actors, disassociated from the United States and Ethiopian governments, and their very real inability to distance themselves from the actions of these governments on the ground in Ethiopia. So if we look at contestations over language in 1960s Ethiopia, it becomes apparent that such an analysis can help clarify both the affection and the resentment that came to characterize the relationship between Peace Corps volunteers and Ethiopian students, and the way this relationship then influenced the Cold War and the Horn of Africa. So first sort of to set up the Peace Corps as their, their conception as an apolitical institution. The Peace Corps was and remains funded by the US government, um, but from the first, the key architects of the program emphasized the need for separation between the Peace Corps and US foreign policy. Volunteers were attracted to the idea of serving in the Corps precisely because it was seen as a way to contribute to the global community without the negative consequences attached to US economic or uh, military imperialism. Harris Wofford, the first country director of Ethiopia, 
was also intimately involved in the establishment of the Corps. And he commented, it's important to us that promoting American policy or producing pro-Americans not be among the program's purposes. This policy was supported both by the Corps and the wider State Department who agreed with Shriver's assessment that volunteers' claims to be working for peace would be undermined by aggressive Cold War campaigning. The hope was the contributions of the volunteers would communicate an implicit argument for the value of American democracy. Dean Rusk and uh, the State Department sort of encapsulated the contradictory relationship of the Peace Corps program to the U.S. State Department when he advised the Peace Corps is not an instrument of U.S. foreign policy because to make it so would rob it of its contribution to foreign policy. <laughs> Yet despite the avowed distinction between the Peace Corps and U.S. foreign policy, it is significant that the largest Peace Corps program operating in Africa in the 1960s was situated in Ethiopia, a critical strategic point in the Cold War. At the time, the Ethiopian Empire encompassed present-day Eritrea, which held great importance to US economic interests. Its location at the juncture of Asia and Africa and the access to key sea lanes was very important for US keeping a relationship with oil-producing countries. But the most significant was their access to Cagnu, which was a really relied upon Cold War listening station in Ismara. Um, it was just this enormous monstrosity of a listening station with satellites all over the place and also sort of, uh, this was supposed to be a space of the US in Asmara, so there was golfing but also bowling alleys, a huge cinema, um, this like sort of encapsulated bit of America that Eritreans couldn't enter but uh, had its own main street for shopping. Um, and the name itself, Cagnu Station, has a fascinating history that speaks to the politics of language. Um, it's an Amharic word, which means order out of chaos, and it was named for the name of a riderless horse that in the Battle of Adwa in the late 19th century in the Ethiopian ranks apparently charged riderless towards the Italians and gave the Ethiopians great uh, uh, inspiration that helped them beat the Italians in the battle and then uh, resist colonization. So it has this name that's sort of a symbol of Ethiopian independence and resistance to colonialism that was then appropriated by the US, the name of this giant Cold War listening station that took up a ton of real estate um, and was highly symbolic of US influence in the empire. So in this way, Cagnu, or the idea of order out of chaos, takes on a sort of more malevolent tone. Um, but in some ways, the presence of Peace Corps volunteers did help mitigate the vision of the US as ugly imperialists. Volunteers forged strong relationships with members of their new Ethiopian communities, particularly their students, and they did generate a lot of goodwill. Peace Corps teachers and their students forged these really strong relationships that continue to last, and students who became committed Marxist-Leninists and demanded, demanded the end of US influence in the country still retained strong relationships with their teachers, and in cases, uh, you know, named their children after their Peace Corps teachers, and. Uh, would move to the U.S. later. And a key reason cited for this goodwill in oral histories taken with former students of Peace Corps volunteers was the volunteers' commitment to learning the language of their community. So Ethiopians specifically differentiated between Peace Corps volunteers and diplomats, military advisory group personnel, and other foreign service workers because of their immersion in the community and because of their Amharic skills. And Peace Corps volunteers themselves made the same distinction. In the words of one volunteer, he was talking broadly about the Ethiopian volunteers. He said, 
Peace, the Peace Corps volunteer differed from other Americans who had served in Ethiopia before. He was neither a consultant, a diplomat, nor a propagandist. He was subject to the laws of Ethiopia. Most importantly, he had a knowledge of Amharic. Volunteers prided themselves on avoiding the stereotype of the ugly American and deliberately challenged themselves to speak the new language of their host nation. They threw themselves into situations where they were forced to use Amharic on a daily basis. Many volunteers recall stories of bartering gone wrong as they worked on their Amharic skills, miscommunications as they tried to shop for themselves and set up their new homes and learn about the bureaucracy of the Ethiopian education system. But they prided themselves on these challenges and they come up consistently in oral histories as a way of sort of demonstrating their commitment to cultural immersion. However, while they spoke Amharic in the streets, Upon request of the Ethiopian government, they taught English in schools. In some cases, this occasioned miscommunications that strained relationships between student and teacher. In Deborah Behan, students drafted a petition in Amharic to protest their teacher's behavior. The teacher, Marion, was accused of calling her students dogs, when in fact she had frequently used the expression okie-dokie. <laughs> New to English, her students could not appreciate American colloquialism and had mistaken joshing remarks for serious insults, doki, for dog or donkey. But for activist students in Ethiopia, of which there were a growing number in the 1960s, the choice to teach English in classrooms was itself explicitly political. And many students believed that the teaching of English revealed the ways that the Peace Corps ideal of binational exchange fell short in actual practice. By teaching English in Ethiopia, these students believed that Peace Corps volunteers were covertly working to alienate Ethiopian youth from their own culture and language and to open these students up to American Cold War influence. And yet, examining the result of English language instruction also can provide a fascinating example of the ironic ways in which Peace Corps volunteers unintentionally facilitated and aided radical student groups across the empire. By the 1960s, the Ethiopian student movement was growing, and their interest in Marxism was growing as well, fostered in part by Ethiopian students returned from the United States, another paradoxical way in which the US international education projects ended up supporting resistance movements. So this movement in Ethiopia was comprised of both secondary and university students. Historian Baharuzode argues that one of the most important factors of the growth of the movement was the incorporation of high school students into the movement. And the, and the influx of Peace Corps teachers starting in 1962 meant that the secondary school system was able to expand significantly and educate many more students than previously possible. The addition of Peace Corps teachers allowed an increase in the number of secondary school students from 6,200 in 1960 to 34,050 in 1969. So perhaps the most quantifiable impact of the Peace Corps is that their addition to the teaching roster meant that there were more secondary students, secondary school students available to radicalize. Um, but also, they were instructing these students in English, providing a language comprehension which meant that these students could actually read Marxist works, which while of limited availability in Ethiopia, were also exclusively available in English. So the Peace Corps program ended up producing more students and burnishing these students English language skills to help them more effectively consume socialist texts. Um, but the politics of language appear in even sharper relief when we look at the many areas of the Ethiopian empire where Peace Corps volunteers were deployed where Amharic was not the dominant language of the area. So many volunteers arrived in their new communities only to find that their months of Amharic language immersion was essentially useless. 
because the residents spoke Oromifa, Tigrinya, Gurainya, or Adarinya. While it is the official language of the empire, Amharic is only one of 70 estimated languages and 200 dialects spoken in Ethiopia. And of these, nine are spoken by a significant portion of the population. Amharic is the language of the Amhara people who dominated government positions and were the largest landholders. So while Peace Corps Volunteers Facility in Amharic benefited them in Addis Ababa and in regions with a majority Amhara population like Gondar and Bahardar, volunteers were deployed all over the empire. And students in these areas felt disconnected from their teachers precisely because of the volunteers' commitment to speaking Amharic. Many volunteers found that their Amharic was not only of little use, it also marked them out as agents of the Ethiopian government. And this was particularly the case in the province of Eritrea. In 1962, the same year that the Peace Corps first arrived, Emperor Haile Selassie formally annexed Eritrea, which had been a federation of the empire up until that point. With federation, Haile Selassie eliminated the official Eritrean languages, Tigrinya, Tigray, and Arabic. Students who spoke these languages were forced to learn Amharic in primary school then, and then switch to English in secondary. These students were decidedly not impressed by their teacher's facility with Amharic, which was the king's language. They were in fact insulted when their teachers attempted to speak with them using Amharic outside of the classroom. Volunteers had to start from scratch in these new communities, learning Tigrinya, Arabic, or Omarmifa to avoid offending their colleagues and students. One volunteer, Kurt Peterson, remembered struggling in 1966 to gain acceptance from Eritreans after initially attempting to use his new Amharic skills. It wasn't until he settled in his Mara that he even learned the word thank you, yakenele, or good, sibuk. He remembered both words being very difficult for the average American, including me, to accurately pronounce, but both words were extremely useful in the context I faced on a regular basis. Thank you and good are probably the most important words <laughs> to start any language with. Uh, so when a Peace Corps volunteer made the decision to speak Tigrinya, and in some cases to allow Tigrinya or Arabic in their classrooms, it could be interpreted as a political act that challenged Haile Selassie's rule, and some students did interpret it that way. Eritrean students recalled that they felt their teachers fostered an open educational atmosphere in their classroom, which they appreciated. But this also opened volunteers up to being questioned in their own classes. One volunteer remembered being bombarded with questions from students as to how a democracy, the US, could go to such lengths to support a king. These questions had an increasingly prominent role in the 1960s as Haile Selassie's repression of the Eritrean liberation movement facilitated by American weaponry became a more consistent feature of everyday life in Asmara. Tom Gallagher, who prided himself on encouraging his students to ask provocative questions, was confronted with an impassioned question from his student. This student asked me in Tigrinya why the Ethiopian soldier wearing the donated American uniform and carrying a donated American M1 rifle had killed his grandfather the night before. What could I say? Therefore, because of the political tensions that existed between Haile Selassie's government and the growing Eritrean separatist movement, Peace Corps volunteers communicated strong political allegiances with their use of language, and a language they originally learned in order to communicate their separation from traditional Cold War politics. Ethiopian students understood that the guns carried by the police who broke up their protests were American M1 rifles. And supporters of the Eritrean liberation in Asmara recognized that the F-85s flying overhead were donated by the United States government. 
Ethiopians involved in advocating land reform, limiting state repression, and accessing greater freedom of religion all encountered the power of Haile Selassie's feudal regime through the prism of American weaponry. So American support of the regime was inescapable, highly visible for all Ethiopians involved in advocating for change in the late 1960s. So in this context, Peace Corps teachers claim of being peaceful, non-political volunteers rang hollow to students, a fact that students began to make known in growing instances in the late 1960s by throwing stones at Peace Corps volunteers, shouting Yankee go home in English, and breaking the windows of the Peace Corps building in Addis Ababa. But even amongst the growing group of Ethiopian students protesting the Peace Corps, the messiness of the interaction between language and politics emerged. Challenge, the main organ of the radical student group Asuna, proclaimed that the Peace Corps had facilitated the neocolonization of Ethiopia, especially in the field of education and culture through their instruction of English. Yet Challenge itself was an English publication, partially because Asuna was made up of students from different language groups across Ethiopia, and English was their only common tongue. Meanwhile, Eritrean activists often preferred English to Amharic, which they saw as the primary language of their oppressor. As an, an Asuna activist back in 1960s, I remember sending a letter to an Eritrean leader in Amharic. He was trying to uh, uh, establish ties between their two different protest groups. And the letter said in Amharic, as long as all of us were anti-feudal and anti-imperialist, there's no reason why we could not support one another and cooperate with one another. The reply to this letter was written in English and told him in no uncertain terms that unless you acknowledge Ethiopia as a colonizer, Eritrea as a colony, and Amharinya as the language of the colonizer, no relationship can be established between us. In 1960s Ethiopia, therefore, no language choice was neutral. Language could both facilitate and impede ties between Peace Corps volunteers and their students, but it could not transcend the social and political unrest occasioned by US military and financial support of Haile Selassie's government. Because of the political tensions that existed between the authoritarian monarch, the student movement, and the growing Eritrean separatist movement, Peace Corps volunteers communicated strong political allegiances with their use of language, a language that they originally learned in order to communicate their separation from such politics. While volunteers could and did refuse to directly discuss politics with their students, their very act of speaking at all could communicate either allegiance with government or student. And by the end of the 1960s, even determinedly apolitical Peace Corps volunteers felt themselves inexorably drawn into the politics of the Cold War Ethiopia. In the first month of 1970, over 70 volunteers resigned en masse. In English, they wrote a letter that stated, no matter how good a job we feel we are doing as individuals, our experiences made it clear that we are first and foremost symbols of an oppressive American presence which national-minded young Ethiopians deeply resent. Despite the fact that these teachers had deeply committed to learning Amharic and then the language of their community, whether Oromifa, Tigrinya, or another language, they could not escape their role as symbols of an oppressive American presence. Language acquisition did indeed facilitate transnational ties between teacher and student, some of which last up until these day, but neither teacher nor student could avoid the political implication of the question of who is taught and in what language question that ended up shaping the vibrant student movement that led to the Ethiopian Revolution. Thank you. So this is the kind of a snippet into the Soviet side of a larger project that compares Soviet and, and American international correspondence in the Cold War. And I'm just going to start with one of the seminal moments in development of Soviet international coverage. 
So in October 1955, delegation of seven Soviet journalists uh, went to the French port of Le Havre and boarded a New York bound ship. They were all super excited and very nervous because theirs was the first official delegation of Soviet journalists to travel to the United States since 1946. It was comprised mostly, it was led by Boris Pelevoy, who was this very notorious uh, Pravda war correspondent, Stalin Prize winning author, and a very famous journalist. The rest of the people had you know, equally high credentials in terms of like, decorated war correspondents, senior writers for the Soviet press, and one newcomer, Alexei Jubey. Uh, a recent graduate of uh, Moscow State University Department of Journal Philology, really, um, newly appointed editor of Komsomolska Pravda and Nikita Khrushchev's son-in-law. Um, so the very existence of this delegation, it's the first time in nine years, it re reflects how Cold War politics changed after Stalin's death. Uh, several months later, during the Geneva Conference, uh, Soviet Union and the United States agreed that there will be exchange of journalistic delegations to promote better understanding between two sides. Interestingly enough, um, the American delegation preceded the Soviet one, and it was led by William Randolph Hearst Jr., uh, probably the most vilified uh, <laughs> representative of American news media in the Soviet Union. So our delegation, the Soviet journalists, they're traveling around the United States, they're visiting regular homes, meeting colleagues in newspapers' offices, uh, going to historic sites, they even attend a Hollywood party where they kind of meet uh, Marilyn Monroe, Grace <laughs> Kelly, and this little known to them up-and-coming politician named John F. Kennedy. Uh, upon their return home, they submitted uh, several reports to kind of um, to, their, to their authorities, to the party, to their newspapers, and essentially I'm really reducing like, the, the complexity and the diversity of what they're talking about, but essentially what they're saying in many ways is that Soviet international propaganda had much to learn from American know-how. And Soviet news reporting from the United States emerges as one of the areas where improvement was deemed most urgent. In 1955, a telegraph agency of the Soviet Union, which is known as TASS, was the largest and the most visible representative of Soviet news media on American soil. It had two bureaus, one in New York City, one in Washington, D.C., it had more than 20 employers at its disposal, roughly like between third and half of whom were native English-speaking US citizens. And yet, despite these very impressive resources, delegation members discovered that TASS fell far behind its competitor, the bourgeois media. Uh, so TASS reporting from the Soviet Union, that was notorious to kind of um, the journalistic style that TASS practiced was dry, laconic, and simply boring. Uh, agencies' correspondents did not attend events for international press corps, barely traveled in the United States, and seldom interacted with American colleagues. Soviet correspondents often spoke pure, poor English, knew close to nothing about local culture. So silent and invisible were tasked journalists in the United States when one, when one Soviet journalist like, summoned courage and asked a question during President Eisenhower's press conference, it became front page news. Uh, in short-charged Polyvoy delegation, Soviet journalists in America missed valuable opportunities for covering interesting stories and for advancing the Soviet viewpoint abroad. Uh, in 1955, these shortcomings are especially detrimental for Soviet Union's kind of foreign policy goals. 
Stalin's successors introduced dramatic changes in Soviet foreign policy. They began to emphasize global outreach and international engagement. And the press was to play a key role in this process. First, it would bring the foreign world into Soviet homes while explaining the advantages of Soviet socialism over American capitalism. Uh, and at the same time, it will um, communicate Soviet positions to worldwide audiences overseas. So essentially, the success of the new Soviet foreign policy depended on the ability of Soviet news media to learn the language of internationalism. And so the, the years, kind of the Khrushchev years roughly, uh, between 53, but more likely 55 after this delegation comes home, and 63, uh, saw Soviet international reporting go through a series of reforms as it attempted to align itself with the country's new international outlook. And my own research and so most of, and all of the examples in this paper will come from the American case, which for obvious reasons was also the flagship of international reporting, kind of the most important arena to invest in international reporting, but certainly the processes that I'm describing are kind of true to broader Soviet reporting from the capitalist world. Um, learning the language of internationalism was not a smooth process. Self-doubt and insecurity about direction plagued reformers and often undermined the changes. And nevertheless, by the mid-1960s, uh, international reporting was transformed dramatically and Soviet press corps in the United States was a far cry from the timid bunch that Polivoy delegation found in 1955. So how did they do it? Did they actually achieve what they hoped for and triumphed over bourgeois propaganda? So this is what we're gonna find out. Uh, helpfully for all, Polivoy delegation not only described existing problems, but also laid out a vision for improving Soviet reporting from the United States and this vision was focusing on the, prof on the professional persona of a foreign correspondent. So gone was the old ideal of a journalist who would be a trumper of the part, trumpet of the party who coordinates everything with Moscow. Rather, they imagined this kind of journalist activist who's going to be very interested in foreign affairs, take initiatives, sound his and hers, or hers, mostly his, uh, own voice. Uh, he was this assertive propagandist who's going to go out and engage foreign audiences and really promote the Soviet viewpoint by engaging foreign colleagues, asking penetrating questions at press conferences, and the like. And here kind of I would like to sharpen this, this relationship between the national and the international, essentially. Why do we expect that news produced by Soviet journalists for Soviet newspapers would actually promote the Soviet viewpoint, right? And, and this is kind of key to the Soviet press's function as the view of the Soviet foreign policy. Soviet press is the view of the Soviet foreign policy. Pravda is like the party view, is Vesti, is the government view, and it is treated as such by analysts, diplomats, Kremlin watchers, and the likes. So if you want to know what the Soviet government is thinking, you read really, really carefully these international news items. Um, and also kind of, it was well known and banked on that statements in Soviet press would be cited, reprinted, mentioned in international papers, and thus carry the Soviet perspective around the world. Uh, changes in Soviet international reporting happened gradually and simultaneously, uh, and they involved both kind of the press and the country's ideological and cultural establishment. And the first of these changes was that TAS began, and that actually happens pretty fast, uh, began to lose its virtual monopoly on international news coverage. TAS reports were so notorious for being unimaginative and poorly written that in the Soviet newspapers, TAS became a code word for journalism that had to be avoided at all costs. <laughs> so for example, a senior, senior editor 
at Izvestia, the second largest Soviet paper, international department observed, and I quote, it so happens that many of the comrades who are now writing on international themes for three or four years have learned about foreign life, not as much from experience, but from task materials. There is nothing more horrible than task materials. If you want to ruin someone, let them read tasks for a year. <laughs> Your mission is accomplished. It may sound harsh, but stylistically speaking, this is the case. <coughs> so this sentiment is, is pretty widely shared, and it comes across kind of, you know, in memoirs of journalists. So one journalist remembered he was, uh, he was an Izvestia, kind of a rookie Izvestia correspondent, and his editor was like a former task editor, so he shows up with this item, and it's like beautifully written, and he's so proud, and so like the task editor like starts like removing essentially all the adjectives from the, from the item, and then slamming uh, like a new heaven, like the bourgeois, the, the, the degradation of bourgeois West. Uh, and so, and, and stories like this were manifold, and so kind of in response, Soviet newspapers began to invest in their own in-house reporting on international affairs. They have been doing so with like the socialist uh, world, but now kind of they start like the, the investment in reporting from capitalist West kicks in. So the three major newspapers, Pravda, Izvestia, and Truth, promoted young journalists to new responsible posts in international departments, and then within a few years, these journalists actually headed out to open their newspapers bureaus overseas. Uh, one of my favorite examples is Boris Strelnikov, who was um, a war veteran, had like a short stint in Komsomol, in like youth organizations in Komsomolska Pravda, knows no English, and then in 56, he becomes Pravda's correspondent in New York. Uh, he crams English for like seven weeks or whatever, arrives, he, he, he finds himself completely kind of unable to ask like not even unable to, to not able to get directions on the street. Uh, luckily for him, he was assigned to the UN, so essentially sat there with like the sessions were translated. Uh, so for the first two years, he just like you know looking around and trying to make his way and learn English. Uh, that guy ends up covering the United States for almost 20 years, uh, becoming Pravda's like single most important presence and celebrated uh, feature writer uh, from New York and then from Washington. But he essentially is a nobody. Um, who gets promoted to that post, just showing again how much willing they were to invest actually fresh blood into the foreign coverage. So um, these journalists, so these new journalists, and I should say Strelnikov is, um, is, an, is the odd one out really because, because he's completely untrained for work overseas. Like another kind of thing that happens is that Many of the people who head out are actually kind of uh, trainees of um, MGMO, which is the Moscow State University for International Relations, or various foreign language institutes. So they actually are kind of trained specifically for overseas work. They have the language training, and also, I guess, interaction mentalitet training to engage with you know, host countries. So these journalists and their editors agree that international materials should be well-written, engaging, and, accept and accessible. They endeavor to put forward a coherent and interesting analysis, capture the reader's imagination, and respect their interests and intelligence. Editorial boards took pride in the fact that both the analytical capacity and the literary style of reports produced by their own correspondents far surpassed those of TAS. And so by the mid-60s or the early 60s, really, we see that the newspapers rely on TAS less and less, and most of the items on like, international news come from their own correspondents overseas. In 1966, uh, Novosti Press Agency, APN, was established and added another voice to Soviet international propaganda. 
IPN's mission was, quote, spreading truthful information about the USSR abroad and introducing the Soviet public to the lives of people in foreign countries. And to reach these goals, they had all sorts of like interesting strategies. For one, APN correspondents actually like went around pushing stories and actually offering their materials for free, which increased their chances to be published. They also used them really like unorthodox methods. For example, once they took uh, like two, like a one-page advertising space in two large American newspapers, and they used it to print Khrushchev's speech on disarmament. Um, the relationship between international reporting and foreign policy establishment became, began to change as well. So for years, um, so both newspapers and even TASS were kind of quietly lamented that official intervention hampered international reporting and made it inefficient. So now journalists recognized that as the voice of Soviet foreign policy, they had to follow diplomatic conventions, they need to carefully calibrate their language, but at the same time they insisted that it should be as important that reporting is interesting as engaging. Um, during the Stalin years, it was mostly instructions from government officials that determined the choice of topic in international reporting. And so one of my interviewees describes this place where they, can, they call to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, so like Pravda is Viesti and Tas, they show up and they have a conversation with like Molotov or Kuczynski. It's just like a chit chat about, you know, like the current situation, like what foreign, so like, the Soviet foreign policy goals, like the most urgent things that are happening, and then, and then kind of they go back to their offices and write up, um, and write up these kind of their, in their analysis and their own words. And what was interesting that during the Stalin years, the, 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 the political commentary, both like the international commentary, both in Pravda and Izvestia, did not have a name signed to it. It was called either the observer or a commentator. I can't remember which is which. And what my respondent told me is that, for example, he worked for Izvestia, so if his was like more pungent, so his would be printed in Pravda, and the Pravda one, which would be like more balanced as the federal government paper, would go to Izvestia. So completely kind of no sense of personalized authorship, and the foreign mid becomes like that source of international news. So now international reporting focuses more and more on like the real activities and the actions on the international agenda. So these are delegations, summits, meetings, and so on. But also, and importantly, uh, on foreign correspondents themselves. So journalists were expected to identify important and interesting events in the lives of their host country and report them to the readers, which, made, which actually gave them a lot of room to exercise their own judgment, preferences, and personal initiative. This ex the extent of how independent they are should not be overestimated. So uh, the newspapers still are the voice of the Soviet policy. So phones ring, you know, in the newspaper's editorial rooms. On the other side, you have a uh, foreign ministry or the party and carefully explaining how to cover that or another particular angle. And of course, there's zero room for independent assessment in, you know, big events like the Hungarian Revolution or the Suez Crisis. Um, how much time do you have? About eight minutes. Okay, cool. uh, so, it just like as a side note, it's very important to, to, for me to understand that for Soviet journalists, there's no contradiction between developing language of internationalism and writing within the confines of censorship, party ideology, and uh, and foreign policy interests. Because for them, um, kind of the, the the integrity with the party state, ideological integrity and the educational mission, they are very central to what Soviet journalism should be doing even after Stalin's death. So 
even though they are encouraged to borrow from foreign experience and take initiative and rely on their personal preferences, uh, and that, in a sense, also creates many more opportunities and many more kind of gray spaces that are not necessarily controlled and supervised and still give them a sense of freedom to do what they want to do. Uh, some members of the media establishment found these innovations difficult to cope with. Uh, ambivalence about and harsh criticism of the new measures cast a long shadow over many editorial meetings and party gatherings where journalists wondered whether the press was turning its back on its duties toward the state and the people. Uh, some find that this new writing style was unwelcome and they were worried that now there's proliferation of tones, it actually can create the impression that Soviet foreign policy was weak and indecisive. Uh, whereas reformers argued that beautifully written reports made Soviet propaganda more appealing, detractors insisted that it harmed the polemic tone of the Soviet press and undermined Soviet Union's international positions. Uh, many journalists, editors, and information officials hoped that members of the public had attained the appropriate level of Marxist consciousness so that they could handle nuanced and complicated representations of life overseas. Yet many of their colleagues kept wondering whether Soviet, whether Soviet people were, deal, were ready to deal with multiple perspectives and different opinions on the international situation. And so, for example, in 1956, Izvestia art correspondent Anna Begicheva urged her colleagues to remain vigilant against the dangers of foreign influences and criticized their tendency to indulge in, I quote, ecstatic, obsequious worship of Western culture. There are things we cannot yet tell our people on Kalkhozniks, she explained. Kalkhozniks are people who live on collective farms. Um, many colleagues shared these concerns, and uh, those who opposed the reforms worried that Soviet audiences would be unable to retain critical attitudes toward all things foreign, um, and believed that actually in sounding this alarm against bourgeois culture and Western influences, they are serving the interests of their readers and, uh, and, and the state. And so it often happens in these years that debates about professional practices, they're actually talking about reform, like, you know, reporting, but what they are really talking about is uh, like their uneasiness about this rapidly changing attitudes toward the West and the impact of foreign what they see as foreign influences on Soviet press. Uh, and tensions, moments of tensions in international relations magnified and exacerbated these concerns and made journalists wonder whether the new style of international reporting was to blame. For example, in the wake of the Hungarian Revolution, um, party, uh, sorry, Pravda party cell held, holds this like very long soul-searching meeting where essentially they discuss like the role of the press in Soviet society. And so one remorseful Pravdist kind of uh, gets after another get up, uh, accusing the intelligentsia of taking reforms too far and stressing the importance of vigilance against bourgeois propaganda and essentially asking, is this our fault? Like, is that because we did not uh, report like sharply enough? Um, and this kind of, I think, points to the tension that was at the heart of Soviet engagement with the world, especially in the post-Stalin era, because on the one hand, there is this international socialist ideology that encourages Soviet citizens to learn about foreign peoples and cultures. On the other hand, there's always the fear that the foreign may prove too seductive, that we might degenerate into countering to the West, and, and so on. Um, and I think that Soviet international engagement as a whole was plugged by this tension and, and by the difficulty to find kind of a good path between the two. 
And in, and in this context, international reporting appeared both as the cause and the solution for the problem of the dangerous bourgeois propaganda. For example, uh, veteran correspondent Viktor Mayevsky argued that at times, Pravda's, and I quote, impartial reporting from the West was to blame for readers' acceptability to bourgeois propaganda. And he explains, today, for example, there was a publication about a detonation of another radioactive atom bomb in the USA. Is it good or bad? I could not find out our attitudes toward these explosions. <laughs> so for Mayevsky, any item lacking a clearly pronounced value judgment was impartial. I mean, his American colleagues in Moscow like, would just you know, go crazy for hearing that. Um, but it, and it was the duty of the press to explain international developments as unequivocally as possible. And these comments really, and this is a veteran correspondent who traveled to the West, and, and it, I won't say like the most liberal, but like, okay, like he's not a conservative voice in, in this establishment, but yet this illustrates that like, as they search for language of internationalism, they also confront this tension between American know-how and the values of socialist reporting. Uh, despite the ongoing concerns about reform, Soviet international report, reporting was transformed by the mid-1960s. The Soviet press corps in the United States doubled and then tripled in size as a brand new cohort of foreign correspondents departed abroad. Unlike their predecessors, these journalists came through elite Soviet universities, spoke good English, and were specifically trained for work overseas. They strived to develop a personalized and engaging writing style to explore topics close to their hearts. They believed that it was their duty to bring the foreign life to the reader's doorsteps and provide them with clear and interesting analysis of the international situation. In the process, several features central to the working of American press became the staples of Soviet socialist reporting. It now emphasized well-written stories, highlighted readers' engagement and human interest features, and gradually recognized that individual journalists were valuable assets who could make a distinct contribution to the paper, recall the swapping of unnamed items between Pravda and Izvestia, this is a big change. Um, the new journalistic practices broadened the, the thematic scope of international reporting, dispatches from the United States that included descriptions of American cities, conversations with American people, an occasional review of a movie or a book, or a journey-based essay. Although the lion's share of reporting still focused on politics and foreign relations, you could now see articles about Christmas or air pollution in Soviet newspapers. And by the mid-1960s, um, they begin also to reach out to readers outside of newspaper pages and to author popular books about life and culture overseas. So to conclude, were they successful? So if you remember, goal number one was to, to kind of expand Soviet outreach to international audiences. And um, Americans are worried about Soviet international reporting, but kind of having looked at how worried they are, I can say that they are now more worried than say they were in Stalin years. They're worried about particular topics more than others, like civil rights in Vietnam, but, uh, but there's no kind of an increased sense of worry about how potent Soviet propaganda become. Uh, what has changed is that they, Soviet correspondents really are now engaging with American uh, policymakers, colleagues, State Department officials and the like, and so they, they're going out. There's like a great deal of personal diplomacy uh, where journalists are initiating, participating, and so on, and, and actually kind of Americans kind of catch up. So by the, by the late 60s, they actually seek out Soviet foreign correspondents and international commentators to, to when they want to sound like, to understand what the new directions of uh, foreign policy would be like. 
So the second aspiration was to teach like readers about lives overseas and to emphasize the advantages of socialism, right? And so here the results are mixed. Uh, the evidence is hard to find, and so my assessment relies on like series of analysis and conclusions. Uh, and really, this is kind of evidence gathered from all sorts of places. There are different ways to engage. There were different ways to read these reports. So some people really read like expected conscious Marxists um, and bought into this, 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 this as a proof of socialism superiority over capitalism. Others, however, ignored the Marxist interpretation and just read the reports as uh, like tour, travel guides that were absent in the Soviet Union to understand, so what, what was it like, what's li what is it like in the United States? Oh, they have like good highways, ah, interesting cars. And so people were reading them, completely ignoring the, the ideological lesson, just kind of as a raw information. Uh, and sometimes kind of having done that, uh, they proceeded to challenge the journalists and sometimes at their own terms. So for example, one is Vestia Reader who identifies himself as a construction worker, uh, writes to his Vestia to complain that he doesn't learn enough about uh, the lives of American workers. And what he says, your correspondent in San Francisco peeped into every backyard in San Francisco, visited cesspools and garbage pits, interviewed drug addicts and hippies, and asked them about their lives and aspirations, but could not find a single worker. Yet someone must have built these freeways and highways through the California desert <laughs> garden, providing fruit and, uh, fruit and grain to most of the country, and laid out the California aqueduct that you described. So in conclusion, he laments that so all of his Vestia has now many correspondents in the United States. He still knows nothing about American workers. Um, and that's like, it's, it's an interesting, like it's a semi-subversive reading, right? So what are you doing talking about like all these like bad things uh, and kind of pointing the internal contradictions of these reports. At the same time, essentially, all those, I, I, I wouldn't know about American workers. And, and kind of an, another uh, related or maybe not way to engage this was kind of to completely uh, disbelieved everything that was written because it was published in the Soviet press. And those who read Vasily Aksyonov's memoir, In the Search of Melancholy Baby, remember when he describes that, that Soviet citizen who could have forever spent his life disbelieving what was Soviet propaganda, and then he arrives in the United States, and he's so disappointed to find out that, he got, that it got like some things right. Um, so it's very interesting to me that precisely the time when international reporting develop its own confident voice and present in Soviet information landscape and both overseas as well, uh, readers' engagement with this reporting became more and more and more difficult to control and has all these unexpected ways. Uh, and to me, I think it has kind of broader uh, implication as we think about, I guess, the global appeal of the Soviet and the American project and how Soviet Union's engagement with the West um, reflects and interacts with like internal developments with the country and how kind of trajectory of the Soviet regime. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sorry. Such a strong start to the day for absolutely fascinating papers and um, I'm so happy to be um, sharing this panel um, and sort of like bathing in the light of the, of the speakers. I'll be very brief because I'm sure that there are lots of questions out there and, uh, and uh, we have about half an hour to, for, for discussion. Um, I, was, I was struck of the, some of the, you know, these are papers 
very different geographic locations and very different um, uh, dealing with very different uh, uh, issues and, and very different ways of understanding internationalism and language as well. But there are things where they, they intersect really strongly. Um, and, and I think it was Beatrice that, um, that pointed this out, that this is the messiness of the relationship between language and politics that, that, you, that you all engaged with. Um, and, and somehow, unexpected, quite unexpectedly, um, uh, not so unexpected in Vienna's and Beatrice's case, but, but it was also about teaching and learning from each other. It, it's that, that kind of knowledge transfer um, with, with the intent of teaching. Um, that 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 uh, runs uh, through all papers, um, and in that teaching process, there is uh, because it is the cold. So, so this is the the fascinating um, part of the 20th century where internationalism becomes really heavily institutionalized, and there are a lot of drivers to it politically and and uh, and in, well and, and scientifically uh, for uh, for certain. Um, and at the same time, the stakes of, of, of these engagements and, and encounters become so high. And, and the, there is this real uh, focus on the, the control over the, over the meaning of exactly what is conveyed. And this, this meaning that gets caused, caught in, in, in these situations where things get mistranslated or not translated at all. Uh, and I was really fascinated by how some of these are quite planned. Uh, and the Romanian students just you know, don't make it to these events because they're sort of like, you know, that, that gets lost in translation. But also, um, uh, some are quite uh, used as a pushing back against the, the, the official line as um, um, students, uh, uh, these uh, pioneers talking in um, language uh, among each other that, that their um, uh, um, people who are supposed to be in control do not understand, or, or the, the, the Ethiopian case where there, there is this, um, the, the stakes, the political stakes of exactly what language you use, and then what language emerges as a tool for, for political goals um, become so um, uh, prevalent. But also in, in, in the case of, um, of, of uh, permafrost, uh, that, uh, that interaction with the science and the, and the terminology um, that's coming from a place that's so, and, and, and is embedded in this relationship that's so um, fraught, uh, but at the same time, uh, uh, the, the terminology itself becomes central to the actual science and the, and the interactions, uh, um, absolutely um, fascinating. So um, I, I'm, I'm really, after, after the, the, the panels yesterday, it, it's really great to see um, the, these interactions of, 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 um, of language and translation that is not specifically like an international language that we saw in the first panel, or, or dedicated people as translators and interpreters, but actually, you know, the, the, the internationalists themselves, and we can call these children and students and teachers and journalists and, and scientists, who are not, you know, the, the first people that come in mind necessarily when we, we think about um, internationalism, how they're actually interacting and how that way of interaction and language and translation and 
teaching um, and, and, and conveying information matters um, on the ground and then how it, how it, how it works um, uh, up to, the, to, to, to broader political um, uh, processes, but also how politics are, are reflected, but also contested um, on the ground by these um, people. So I have tons of questions, but I'll save them and um, open the floor. Um, so I'll just actually um, try to make a list of people um, we can start. Well, thanks so much for speaking first of all for papers. I have a question for Dina and a question for uh, Beatrice. Uh, uh, you touched upon 56 in Hungary and that they're worried about this. I wonder, is that, did you come across any discussions that they become worried about sort of deviant forms of socialism uh, outside the Soviet Union, sort of in the case of Yugoslavia in the late 40s, the Sinus split after the 60s, that there's, that there's a hijacking of a, of a the language of socialism by uh, by sort of uh, uh, other governments uh, sort of loading these shared this shared language of socialism within with a new meaning. So in other words, are they suddenly worried that uh, people in the US might start listening to Radio Beijing instead of Radio Moscow uh, and hear the same terminology, but obviously a very very different uh, meaning and also get get a very different picture. Soviet Union. So, in other words, are they still talking about the problems of meaning of their own political language uh, in, in a socialist context? And for Beatrice, is, is there at any point the worry that the Peace Corps is going to be hijacked by sort of lefty Americans in the 60s? So, is that that they suddenly are undercut by people who want to go to Africa in a third world liberation wave of, of Westerners suddenly get, getting interested in Africa? Um, thanks so much for, for this. Um, I think that they don't worry that they suddenly become, kind of, I, I couldn't see that them worried that suddenly Americans start paying more attention to Chinese foreign correspondents, say, or to Yugoslav than to the Soviet ones. Um, they're kind of pretty secured in their own importance and that, that they would be heard and paid attention to. Where they do worry is, is inward in the empire, and uh, and kind of and this is the question. So are we to blame for this happening? And kind of in the Yugoslav case, there was like Yugoslavia was really kind of the rogue enemy other than them. But so we were all right, and we just lost them because they were bad. But now and 56 and 68, like are we losing them because we are doing something wrong? And the, and the something wrong is actually invariably that we are not conservative. They don't say that's conservative, but that, that we are like too, too open and too allowing and uh, essentially opening the door to bourgeois influences. And again, there's some, there's, it's something that um, kind of it keeps, you know, it keeps coming over and over again, specifically when foreign radio broadcasts kick in the Soviet Union and that poses a very serious challenge to Soviet press and, and essentially kind of Controlling the story of international, the controlling the international story remains vital to the survival of structure. So I think the fascinating answer to your question is no, um, which is I expected the same. I expected that to be a, a point of discussion and concern amongst Peace Corps officials. And the really interesting thing is that 
they are so committed to their idea of the Peace Corps as apolitical that they refuse to be concerned about this. So they actually try to actively uh, recruit Tom Hayden, SDS members, to be Peace Corps volunteers because they think that this will like show that the Peace Corps is above it all and that these are like these are you know determined people. These are people with like a lot of uh, you know energy, and we want to direct this towards the Peace Corps. They get try and recruit Black Panthers to be part of training. They're really uh, so invested in this idea that the concern is actually reversed and that you see you know, active students, uh, SDS members, being concerned that the Peace Corps is draining you know, people who would be involved in a leftist movement away and directing it towards the program. I have two questions, um, one for Beatrice and another one for Peggy. So for Beatrice, I was just wondering to what extent um, there were differences between various African contexts in which the Peace Corps operated and other contexts in which it also operated. And the, about, specifically about the extent to which this kind of extreme multilingualism in both the amount of actual language and also dialects spoken on site changed the, the, the fraught nature of language and political or non-political, apolitical operation of Peace Corps, say, between um, African and Latin America in particular, I, I realize that you're not looking at everything, but maybe you've come across differences. And uh, with regard to PE, it seemed, I probably am wrong about this, and that's why I'm uh, curious. And it seemed to me that there are two levels of lexical terminology that are used in this kind of debate on what permafrost is. The first one is this kind of hardcore scientific language of which permafrost itself is part as a term. And the other one is a kind of a lexical subset of more colloquial vernacular terms like knowledge uh, or the other one, the frost heaps, what was that? Uh, yeah, Puccinia. So it seems that one of them is very scientific and the, one, the other one is very non-scientific or maybe more, you know, coming from bottom up, if you will. And I was just wondering about the tension that you see between these two subsets and what you're saying. The politics of language I see in different uh, circumstances, so in different African countries opposed to Ethiopia and also in Latin America, but they work differently. So one of the major differences is that Ethiopia, because it doesn't have this history of colonization or strong colonization, is seen by the US generally as this African country that's ripe for US relationship and influence because there isn't another country that has, another Western country that has this strong relationship with them. And that works in the case of language particularly because in you know, after decolonization, a lot, most African countries are sort of struggling with a bureaucracy that is primarily based in the language of the colonizer and what to do with that, whether to keep teaching, you know, English or French in schools or to then incorporate a different uh, language, and if so, which language suddenly becomes the language of, of the nation. And that's not as much the case, it, well, it's not the case in Ethiopia because even though, uh, English is starting to be taught, it's really Amharic, which is the language for many Ethiopians of the colonizer. Um, so it's, it's a different context, but in both cases, the Peace Corps is really trying to negotiate this question of, of language, but they're not seen as the primary drivers. So when they're in Cameroon, say, 
they are not seen as the primary drivers of uh, this imposition of language because English is a third language that's being taught instead of the primary language. And it's different in a, the Latin American case is really interesting because the Peace Corps was much, even though a lot of literature has been written about the Peace Corps in Latin America, it was much, much larger in Africa, partially because they were public school teachers in Africa and there were these giant programs where they made up, particularly in uh, Cameroon and Ethiopia and Nigeria, huge sections of the public school teaching staff. And in Latin America, they were mostly working on community development projects. Um, but language becomes a huge issue there because especially it's the scientific terminology that the Peace Corps, after their eight weeks of training or sometimes even longer, don't have a facility with. And this causes a huge amount of political tension, particularly in the case of development projects that they do around birth control. And in the case of Bolivia, there becomes a huge reaction and resistance to the Peace Corps because of the idea that they're sterilizing people partially based on issues of communication. So it crops up, but in, yeah, in very different ways. Um, yeah, thanks for the question. Definitely, uh, there's a tension here between kind of colloquial and intuitive types of terms versus like very precise scientific technical ones. But this is true. Um, what's interesting is that Sumgin, um, the person who tried to establish Vietnam as a scientific term, he insisted that it was a scientific term, one, and secondly, that it also was an effective term because it was drawn from the people, because it was, a, it was beautiful and poetic. So he actually, that was one of the reasons why he wanted to make it a scientific term, and he's also an unusual character because he didn't finish St. Petersburg University. He was a revolutionary for a while. He was exiled to Siberia and then started working on meteorological observations there and then became interested in frozen. So his background is, 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 in some ways, like not like scientific. Like he, he wasn't raised in this um, upper class household and had all this training. Um, so he he, he it, so he he decided to take this term in part because it was appealing and 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 it it, it had um, it was drawn from the people. And in the 1930s, he's also communicating what Vietnam Mirzata is in the Soviet um, press. So this is a time when the press is talking about conquering nature and, and there are these, these kind of romantic and um, um, d discourses about, about the environment and nature. And, and this term is something that kind of resonates. Uh, it's something that, um, that has kind of cultural resonance at this time. But other scientists attack it precisely because it is not exactly precise. And, but on the other hand, terms like um, geocryology or cryolithosome or um, like other very long terms like like minoga poroda, like that's very un, unappealing. Uh, and so these terms in part, why do they keep living on is because they, they somehow are easy to remember, easy to kind of associate things with. Um, and yeah, there's definitely a tension there, though Sungin tried to combine uh, scientific and colloquial terms. Yeah. I just have a, a, a general question which relates to the way in which our paradigms get away from us. Because one of the points of similarity among the papers, um, namely the Romanian and the Ethiopian one, has to do with the, with the, the notion of a youth culture. Um, which emerges during this period and catches everybody by surprise. In the case of Ethiopia, um, 
there's the assumption that that very American thing called citizen diplomacy is at work, but in reality, an Ethiopian youth culture is being created through the medium of English. Um, and in, um, in Romania, increasingly, you have a situation in which the more the Romanians make contact with other people, the more they learn other languages, and the less controllable they become. And is this, is this notion of a youth culture perhaps one way of thinking about um, the, the period between the late 50s and the late 60s? I'm thinking also in this connection about the, um, about the Moscow Youth Forum of, I think, 1957, if I have the year right, which, um, which brought together young people from all over the world who turned out to be seriously unruly. Um, the, the, um, the Soviet authorities had terrible trouble dealing with the aftermath of, of that event. Oh, I'll also ask my question. So my question is for Peggy. Um, so I that's such a riveting paper. And uh, one tension in that paper that I found coming up again and again was an idea of a static versus a changing climate and uh, of Earth. And this point of conflict, of course, has been really well theorized in our literature on the Anthropocene, where an idea of an unchanging static Earth is seen as tied to our industrial modern project of, 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 a, of a longer history of the Earth and a very short and dynamic history of uh, human affairs. So, I mean, this theory of this divergence, right, between the Earth's history and human history often sort of falls down when you start to apply it to specific um, sort of historic contexts and looking at your sources. So I find especially in the Soviet context, there is still very much an idea of human agency as tied to a changing Earth. Um, and that sort of static Earth model is not quite as uh, sort of crystallized in the Soviet context. Um, so, but then tying that idea of an unchanging Earth to the Cold War dynamics seems like a really, really interesting sort of context in which to see the way in which that like divide plays out on the ground. And so it was sort of in a way not surprising that an unchanging Earth would seem to emerge in that Cold War context. Um, so I'm just wondering how, um, particularly because this Cold War context is becoming more and more focused on economic development, where environment and environmental change would be seen as an, as an externality, and, and as, um, if there is change, it's not meant to be the focus of our study. So I'm just wondering if you see how does this idea of a changing or an unchanging Earth sort of map onto uh, the Cold War sort of dynamic from the Soviet perspective, and do you see in this sort of environmentalism and its rise in the 1960s, is that the time when an unchanging or a changing Earth starts to emerge in these Cold War contexts? Or, is it coming earlier in the Cold War context? And who's leading that idea? Is this, are the Soviets pushing for the changing climate narrative? So, just complex of questions. I'm glad you brought up the, the notion of, of, of our paradigms in interpreting this kind of uh, interactions, because in this particular case of youth culture, it seems to me that our, our, my categories of analysis intersect in interesting ways with the categories of practice of these people I'm looking at. And in particular, I can see a major distinction between the reports, say, by Romanian youth activists that are very, they, they, 
they speak in very euphemistic terms of, of all these problems that are quite important in, in camps. That is, relations between boys and girls in camps, uh, doing, drunks, drinking, uh, doing drugs, drinking alcohol, and so things that could not be contained, whereas because they already operate with a certain notion of youth culture and they take these things to be sort of normal, a lot of these uh, um, Western uh, European youth organizations not only mention them, but they actually have workshops uh, with a sort of left-wing <laughs> hippies uh, on, on how to deal with sexuality in camps or, or young people's sexuality in a way that doesn't um, sort of, that's not uh, just teaching them what to do in a way that's, that's similar to the bourgeois mentality of the larger culture and at the same time sort of contain it in a way, you know, sort of promote cooperation without. Uh, so it's, it, it's just much more um, realistically addressed within an already existing framework of, of, of youth culture in, in some of these other reports. So it's, uh, in that sense, it's interesting. I think the idea of youth culture is really central to my project, particularly because I envision the Peace Corps themselves as part of that culture and what's happening in Ethiopia is almost a sort of competition over what is going to emerge as the, the youth culture of these students because they're deeply influenced by their teachers who are all in their young 20s and all say themselves that the reason why they're going is because, you know, I've never left Kansas and I want an adventure and they also have good idea, uh, you know, altruistic, moralistic motivations, but it's all, this is entwined with the fact that they're young and they want to experience the world. And what happens in Ethiopia is that they do influence this, these young Ethiopians that they're interacting with, many of whom are actually the same age because the public school system is different there and there's a much greater mix of age and students go to school later. So they're of similar ages in some cases. But what they influence them is through different cultural forms, like the clothes that they wear, the music that they listen to. Students remember, you know, going to their teachers' houses and listening to Chuck Berry and things like that, um, and you know, watching their learning guitar from their Peace Corps teacher and learning to play uh, My Clementine or something on the uh, guitar. But what they really reject is the idea that this that this culture is apolitical and can and can somehow trend, that youth culture should be apolitical and so there's intense politics to it. So I think it's, I sort of see it as a competition over youth cultures. Um, to Johanna's question, um, yeah, I, I actually think that Soviet scientists had a lot to contribute to this idea of a changing earth. Uh, I mean, and so, for example, Shvetsov, when he talked about dialectical materialism, it was, it was real for him. Like, because um, nothing is stagnant like that. And we have to think in these dialectical materialist terms. And he took that ideology quite seriously in trying to apply that to the earth sciences. And it was, it was before that, too. Um, he's drawing from the work by geographers, Soviet geographers in the 20s and 30s, like Grigoriev. And so, um, yeah, I think in part because they had that ideology that they had to speak to, but it was also useful for them to think about in these more dynamic terms. Uh, the contrast is with engineering where, you know, eternal was like two years or something. It was like, it was like, you know, they weren't, they were thinking time instead of like geological age. You know, they were just like, that's good enough. <laughs> and, um, and they, they weren't, but, but Shvetsov was coming at this from, and he's interested in the laws of nature and these kind of bigger theoretical questions. And, and for him, yeah, exactly. It's, it's about evolution and change on a really large scale, not just like the next five years, it'll be frozen or something. Yeah, we'll take four questions. Oh, sorry. Um, but, and I 
ask everyone to keep it brief. Okay. Uh, Beatrice, I have a question for you. I love the kind of messiness that your, your portrait reveals to us, but I wondered if there was the potential here to widen the frame and to widen the messiness. Because the story that you tell is one of American Peace Corps volunteers and Ethiopian students, but I wonder, are there other um, internationalists and agents of internationalism also operating in these same communities? Are these Peace Corps um, volunteers from the United States living in the same or neighboring communities as teachers who are coming from Ireland, for example, or the UK, or wherever the, wherever the case may be? Um, in the, in the quote-unquote developing third world, there were lots of stakeholders, and I wonder how the internationalism of this scene might, might be more complex. Okay, I have a thought which is moving towards the question. So, um, it's about the relationship between language as a way of interpreting the world for other people, and language as a way of understanding the world for oneself. So, I was thinking about this mainly in relation to Diana and Dina's papers, but I think it would apply to everybody. Um, so in Diana's paper, you have this um, Romanian uh, young person who is enraptured with German culture, you know, the land of Bach and um, Beethoven. Um, and so that is something that may have come from people interpreting, you know, newspaper interpretations of the world, and it becomes part of his own identity, right? So. There is a relationship here between the ways the world is being interpreted for, um, for um, the way the world has been interpreted for him and the way he has understood himself. In Dina's paper, you have, it's much more obvious, you have the reporters as people who are interpreting the world for others, telling people how they should think about the world, but also, you know, that these people who are out there, you know, Stronkov is there in the US, he hardly speaks, um, hardly speaks English, you know, this must be a very difficult process for him of trying to understand the world. So I guess on one level my question is, you know, a really obvious question is, you know, did they, did the people who are interpreting the world really believe the world, did they see the world in that way? But you can also see it on the level of subjectivity, you know, how, how do these languages in which the world is interpreted in mass media, for example, how do they have a bearing on people's subjective identities? Yeah. Um, so thank you all for these really fascinating papers. I had just two kind of questions for Diana and Dina. And Diana, I was wondering, it seems like your Romanian youth are sort of perennially dissatisfied if they're in, <laughs> whether they're in the Soviet Union or going to the West. Um, <laughs> and and I, was, I was wondering, whether they host their own children's camps in Romania and what their sort of what their sort of ideal version of internationalism is. I mean it, it seems like you, you get at a real tension between sort of internationalism and nationalism slash imperialism that every country that's hosting these camps wants to sort of give their own put their best face forward, you know, and that kind of clashes to some degree with this idea of internationalism. So I was just interested in like what the Romanian ideal sort of version of this is. Um, and then for Dina, uh, I've always been struck like when I use Soviet press articles like for teaching, um, that it seems like they're at their most effective when they just, they would take a lot of, you know, quotes from the congressional record or statistics or even like US newspapers um, and kind of turn, you know, the, I guess I'm dealing more with like 
the civil rights movement or you know the kitchen debate or whatever unemployment. Um, but I'm kind of interested in how much, like, you know, how much they're using their sort of on the ground observations versus just this kind of armchair type of correspondence that they could get from you know going through the library or whatever. I, I have one quick question um, to pay um, about the, the temporal. So, so one of the one of the things that comes out in this. this Difficulty of translating this um, uh, terminology is that the temporality, and uh, and in her uh, work on, on freezing and ice on, in the Cold War, um, Joanna Redden you know argues about the, the this concept of the future of and, and you, you you showed that um, seed bank you know image that is um, now under threat. If that kind of perception of temporality, this this. You know, not, not of the how long it's been here, but but that, that kind of future and then the utility of that that freezing of of the of the yet unknown uses of of of, um, of this permafrost and, um, and and this science that they're producing. So if that comes at all up uh, in the because that that would be you know really fascinating to see how that works out in the Soviet side as well and how that interacts. So, please. Uh, so the, yes, I think widening and looking at other forms of internationalism in the Ethiopian context is important for the story. It's really different in depending on where particularly in the Ethiopian empire we're talking about. So Addis Ababa is intensely cosmopolitan, so much so that Peace Corps volunteers going there, you know, are completely overwhelmed. They have pasta for the first time. They've never had Italian food before they go to Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, and that's their first experience with that. The OAU is, is in Addis Ababa uh, from the early 60s, so then you have all these delegates from all these different African countries there. It's overwhelming, and there's lots of sort of different forms of influence going on. Even so, in the minds of Ethiopian students, they sort of, these other influences fall out a lot because they're not immediate in terms of the interactions that the students have on a day-to-day -day basis. So even the Soviet permanent exhibition, it's there and it's a noticeable feature of the Addis Ababa landscape, but students, even Marxist students, are like, nobody goes to the Soviet permanent <laughs> exhibition. That, that, that's not where we get our, we get our texts from Peace Corps volunteers. Um, so in the mind, it doesn't loom as large. So one, form of internationalism that really is an important part of the story is Indian teachers, who the Peace Corps teachers are teaching alongside and then they come to replace. Um, and a reason why that seems to hold a lot of importance in the mind of students is that they're very different teach pedagogical teaching styles. So it's the Indian teachers teach in a British manner of sort of rote memorization, and the Peace Corps teachers come in and are very like laissez-faire, sitting on their desks, putting their hands behind their head, being like, guys, let's rap, let's talk about important issues. And this different pedagogical style plays a really important role in student sort of conception of uh, the role that the classroom plays in, in the student movement. Um, but there's lots going on. And for, it seems to play, the internationalism plays a larger role in the mind of Peace Corps volunteers in some ways, because these volunteers meet um, if they're in larger cities, meet other development workers from around the world, and so we'll talk to a, a Yugoslavian engineer and have their ideas of the Iron Curtain, you know, exploded by talking to these people. So it seems to, in fact, have a larger impact on the volunteers themselves. 
So, um, I'll start. I'm sorry, just we need to keep the... Absolutely. Uh, on on languages, translating the world uh, for others or representing how you think of yourself, I find this to be a bit of a tension in how young people, uh, Romanian pioneers traveling abroad, kind of experience this, this encounters, in part because the Romanian organization, the way it kind of, it, it, it tried to train them for these exchanges abroad, was not so much to open them to this cultural difference, but for them to be representatives, for them to be on stage as performing an ideal version of Romanianness. So, of course, in practice, this sort of to some extent happens, but you do have, in practice, a lot of opening and that, that kind of experience sort of exploding their sense of what the world is. And it kind of goes uh, back to Rachel's question on the eternally dissatisfied, because, in fact, of course, there is a difference between the children, teens, who are going abroad and who are absolutely positively excited wherever they were going. Um, and the youth activists in their reports would have to some extent show that they're critical of the situation. So it's, it's also a way of, of framing the experience. Some might have actually enjoyed it, God forbid. Uh, and the model, for all its criticism of the Soviet uh, experience, was very closely modeled. So on the Romanian Black Sea coast, in Navodar, and several other locations, they did run an international camp, and similar with collective type of activities and, and uh, visits to important uh, national monuments and factories and cooperative farms and castles and so all the things that they needed to show. So in that sense, it, it, it really was more of a diplomatic, it was much less focused on the experience that children would have a self-government and more on what can we do so that this camp leaves an you know, important impression on foreign guests and it functions as a diplomatic venue. Uh, thanks, Simon. Uh, I have tons to say about subjectivity and language and kind of as far as it relates also to Soviet-American relations um, for the kind of sake of time. I just say that I think that knowing well oneself vis-a-vis -vis the other, it is like for these people, it's both like very central professional and personal project as well, right? And, and they absolutely are aware of it, that on the one hand they are translating like their country's most important for another to their audiences, but they're also living among this for another and often engaging questions, what does it mean, what kind of person I am, am I really belonging, kind of all these things. I think, kind of to me, I don't see much, and I don't know if, I don't know if this is what you asked me, I don't see much, like I think there's the same language in which they articulate these thoughts privately and publicly, if you will. And there's a, like a remarkable consistency among how they, um, how they conceive and describe these differences. Uh, to Rachel's question, actually, uh, citing American sources and kind of using America to indict itself uh, is also part of this post-55 movement. And actually, you see, and this is one of tasks suddenly said, like, oh, you need to be like scouting these like culture pages of American newspapers and find these instructive kind of moments that's gonna, uh, you know, put American culture on the spot and show its degradation. Blah, blah, blah. Um, I, but, but at the same time, they are using tons of, uh, of their own observations, and these are, I mean, these are like amazingly skillful writers. Uh, that they, they are witty, they are funny, they are sarcastic, and they really employ kind of the range of, of the tools in reporting. And for example, I have this, um, 
the Saddam von Strelnikov writes this piece um, about the war in Vietnam, and he starts about he starts with a story about Smokey the Bear, who's in, who has been rescued from a wildfire in the Washington Zoo, and here are like little children coming to see Smokey the Bear. Uh, then he says, "Oh, I just read in the New York Times that the same people who fight who fight wildfire in the United States are actually help are actually starting." wildfire in Vietnam to smoke out Vietnamese children out of their homes and villages. And so, and then he kind of, and then he comes back to Smokey the Bear <coughs> and the contrast of these things. And this is like, it's a short piece. And the reason I know about it is that it circulates in the State Department <laughs> as an example of effective Soviet propaganda. <laughs> and like, so something like seemingly innocuous, but like really dangerous. Uh, and then somebody else says, well, he has a point. <laughs> um, and, and so, like, these are, so that's the existence between the two. And then, just really quick on um, Adora's question. Um, yeah, so besides engineering, um, the permafrost scientists were interested in the anabiosis, you know, and when, like, organisms can be preserved in a slow state for a long time and then revived. Um, and so that was, they were exploring this. I don't know what they had in mind for, like, the uses of that. Um, but. Simkin himself also pro proposed the idea of a seed vault in the permafrost, and um, Nikolai Kremensov has written on the kind of fast, cultural fascination with immortality, um, and so that that was also feeding into that line of permafrost research. Yeah. Thank you. Please join me in, in thanking uh, the panel.